Thank you, Daniel. Well, good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning, a privilege to bring God's Word to you this week. Uh, this week is our final sermon uh, in our fall sermon series entitled Supper with Friends, a study of meals with Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he ascended into heaven to assume his place at the right hand of the Father. But this week's going to be a little bit different. Each and every week in this sermon we've looked back. We've looked back at meals that Jesus had with his disciples, with friends. This week we look forward. We look forward to a meal that has yet to happen, a, me a meal that is to come. And so I'm going to invite you now, if you're able, would you stand? This week we're reading from Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. After this, I, John, heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he, was, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted, corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these words are the true words of God. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is the true words of you, God. We're grateful that when we come to your word, we can encounter you, the living God. I pray that as we encounter you today, that we would be transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As I just mentioned, our text this morning speaks of a meal that is yet to come. But it's no ordinary meal. This is a feast, a wedding feast. It's actually the most glorious wedding feast of all time. Before you get too excited, you should know that it's not quite time for the feast to begin. You see, we have to wait. I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. I want it right now. I want it now. And as a matter of fact, we live in a culture it has made a fortune off of how incredibly impatient we are. 
This is why we have things such as fast food, minute rice, one hour photos, on, t on demand TV, or my, my personal favorite, you don't even have to wait on hold anymore. They'll call you back when it's your turn. Isn't that beautiful? Our society promises instantaneous satisfaction. And yet our text this morning is an invitation to wait. To as the bride who is engaged to be married, to wait for that special day, for that glorious feast. And as I was thinking about this text, I was reminded how engagement really is the hardest kind of waiting. There's this excitement, there's an expectation building over what is to come, a longing for the day when the two will become one, for that night when that oneness will be celebrated and lived out through physical intimacy. But until that day, the couple must wait. They so desperately want to become one, but they choose to wait. They seek to contain themselves, not to touch, until that glorious day. Our text this morning paints a beautiful picture of what we as Christians have to look forward to, this longing that exists in us, much like that of a couple who's engaged to be wed. But until we get there, we also must wait. And knowing how impatient I am and how impatient you are, I wanted to spend some time this morning seeking to paint a picture of what it looks like to wait well. How do we wait patiently for this day that is to come? Two points this morning. What are we waiting for? And then secondly, patiently waiting. So let's begin first. What are we waiting for? I recognize many of you may not be familiar with this book, the book of Revelation, so I want to explain briefly what's going on here in this text. The book of Revelation is the record of a vision that was given to the Apostle John, a vision of the final chapter of the story of creation, often called the end times. At the heart of this vision is the portrayal of Jesus Christ coming back to earth and setting to right all that has gone wrong as a result of Satan and sin entering the world. And chapter 19 is the text that follows Jesus' completion of this task. Chapter 18, Jesus defeats the great prostitute once and for all. He has dealt the final blow to Satan and his followers and puts an end to all the evil, all the injustice, all the ugliness in the world. And then Chapter 19 comes, and as a result of this great victory, a celebration is beginning in heaven. Verse 1, a great multitude in heaven is crying out. And then what we see in verse 4 is that the heavenly beings, the 24 elders, four living creatures, are so moved by this great victory that they're compelled to fall on their faces and worship because God has finally done it. He has defeated Satan once and for all, and he is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. And then in verse 5, the 24 invite all of God's servants to join in in this celebration. The text says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And all the saints who have gone before join in, and John describes the noise as deafening. It's like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to witness this scene with my own eyes. It's gonna be wild. 
it's going to be quite the celebration. But as I was studying this passage and looking closely at the text, I realized that contrary to what I initially thought, it's not the defeat of the enemy that's the ultimate cause for the celebration. Rather, the defeat of Satan is just a means to a far greater end. Look again at verse 7. What we see here is that the ultimate cause for this celebration is that the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Now, before we get into what this means for us, we need to do a little history lesson. I want to show you what a first century Jewish wedding looked like, a little bit dissimilar to the way we do weddings here in America today. And for those of you who are not history buffs, I ask you to bear with me because I think you will be amazed at how when we look at this picture of the wedding, it will give you a way to understand what God is doing in all of creation. So look with me now at this wedding this idea of a first century Jewish wedding. So historians will say that a first century Jewish wedding began much like it does today, that this couple will decide to be wed and then they'll make an announcement. They'll probably bring in parents and maybe some of their closest friends and let them know, hey, we're, we're gonna be married. But what's a little bit different here in the first century Jewish wedding to us is that when this announcement is made, this initial announcement, this announcement is kept secret. So there's a lot that needs to happen before the wedding can take place. So this is just kept between this closest group of friends. And then after this secret announcement comes an engagement ceremony. And in this engagement ceremony, this inner circle is invited to come and bear witness. And in this ceremony, the terms of the wedding of the marriage are accepted. We'll talk about the terms in a second. But after these terms are accepted, God's blessing is pronounced upon this union and then from this day forward, the bride and the groom are legally husband and wife. Legally, but not spiritually. And it's interesting to note in this society, these engagements almost were never broken. They were extremely binding. So this ceremony happens, and then after the engagement ceremony comes this season of waiting. There's this interval between betrothal and wedding feast. And the purpose of this season of waiting is that the dowry must be paid. So in a first century Jewish wedding, if you were going to take a daughter outside of a father's family, that father was going to need to be compensated. I, I think this is pretty awesome. I have three girls, and to think about how the dad comes out ahead, the, the father of the bride wins in this, I think I'm going to encourage this for my daughters. And it's interesting to note that this period of waiting often would last for a very long time. It just depended on how long it took the groom to pay the dowry. And this time, people got married very young. So as you can imagine, these young men didn't have a lot of wealth accumulated. So normally, what they would do is they would go and serve the father of the bride for a season, work in his fields for a season until the dowry was paid. And then this is when it's getting, gets pretty cool. Once the dowry has been paid, they would set the date. It would be time for the great feast and the invitations would go out and all would be invited to come and celebrate. And on the opening night of the feast, there would be a great procession. And so what was needed is that the bride would spend the whole day getting ready, getting herself ready, putting on her greatest and most beautiful clothes, beautiful jewelry, the best that she could find. 
And then when she was finally ready, the groom arrayed in his best attire would come and he'd be accompanied by his best friends carrying torches and they would march through town getting louder and louder as they approached the bride's home. Now, obviously, this would be scary if we saw this today, but this, this, the city knew exactly what was going on in this first century Jewish time. And, and the whole city would get excited along with these men about what was about to happen. And they'd arrive at the home of the bride and, and the bride would be received by the groom. And then they would proceed back to the house of the groom. And the whole city would kind of join in, in this parade as they would go to the house. And then when they arrived at the house, the feast would begin. And what's amazing about these feasts is that they didn't just last for one night. They would normally last for at least a week, sometimes longer. It was just a time for the whole community to set aside the daily grind and just celebrate and enjoy this couple and being together as a community. I don't know about you, but I think they did it way cooler than we did. That sounds so awesome. What a beautiful ceremony. What's the point of this long history lesson? You see, in Revelation 19, the celebration that follows the defeat of Satan is likened to a wedding feast. And what we see here is that God wants us to know that this first century Jewish wedding is the perfect metaphor for what he has been up to in all of creation. And so I want, you, I want to show you this, and I want to see if this doesn't help you have a new lens through which you can read your Bible. So listen with me as we look at the different stages of a first century Jewish wedding. Think about that first announcement. First century Jewish wedding, only the closest of kin are let in on the secret. Is this not the story of the Old Testament? What we see over and over and again in the Old Testament is that God is whispering through the prophets to his people. Something big is about to happen. Something really exciting is coming. Get ready. There's going to be a great wedding and you're invited. Think about this passage in Hosea. There's many passages that show this, but this is my favorite. God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. This first announcement comes and it's, it's, it's leaked out to a few select people, God's inner circle, and they begin to get excited. And then comes the engagement ceremony. And if you think about it, the engagement ceremony is exactly like a covenant ceremony that we see in the Old Testament. Think about Genesis 17. So the text says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then verse seven, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Sounds like a wedding vow. This is that covenant, that ceremony where a commitment is being made between God and Israel. He's promising eternal union, not just with Abram, but with all of his offspring after him throughout their generations. And so this announcement has been made and then the covenant happens where God and Israel become engaged to be wed. But what's next? The dowry has to be paid. Who's gonna pay for this wedding? And we remember that the father waits for the dowry to be paid. And this is the tension throughout the entire Old Testament. 
Israel is waiting with bated breath for the groom to come and pay the debt so that the wedding can begin. And we know the story. In glorious fashion, the groom comes down at last and he pays the dowry with his blood on the cross so that Israel can now finally be wed to him. And what we hear in the t- in, uh, later text is that there is a celebration of the dowry being paid. Listen to Revelation chapter 5. Take it. God, we pray for whoever is hurting right now and pray for the paramedics as they go and care for them. God, would you protect them? And we thank you for the men and women who serve in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. So the angels celebrate this purchase in Revelation 5. They sing this song to Jesus. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hallelujah. The dowry has been paid, which means according to the first century Jewish customs, we now enter into this time of waiting. But what are we waiting for? If you remember, we're waiting for that glorious procession. We're waiting for the groom's second coming, for the groom to come with his entourage to take us to the party which is what is prophesied in Matthew 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And that's what Revelation 19 is talking about. That is what we are waiting for. We're waiting for that feast. We're waiting for this great party. And church, don't miss this. The feast is the goal. It's the end for which everything is working towards. As one commentator says, it's the goal and purpose of that ever-increasing intimacy, union, fellowship, and communion between the Redeemer and the redeemed. Everything is working towards, moving towards, driving towards this great and glorious feast. Listen to how Tim Chester says it. All creation, redemption, mission actually exists for this, that we might eat together in the presence of God. Creation, redemption, and mission all exist so that this meal can take place. God created the world so that we might eat with him. I want you to let that soak in for a moment. What God wants more than anything in the world is to have a meal with you. All of creation was created to this end, for this end so that we might fellowship with him. You are that valuable. You are that special. He longs to feast with you. What if we really believe that? How much dignity and value and work would we carry with us? Knowing that the creator of the universe is longing for the day when he can have a meal with you. I know I don't believe that fully, but one day when I see him face to face, then I'll believe. Then I'll know it's true. I can't wait. But we must, we have to wait. That's the text, that's what the text says. It's not time yet. So let's look now what it means to wait well. Think back about this first century Jewish wedding. What was the role of the bride? What was her job? She had one job, 
get ready. That's all she had to do, get ready. And then the groom would come. Before I talk about readiness, I want to make sure that we're clear on who the bride is. What the scriptures reveal, Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 11, is that the bride is the church. The bride is collectively those of us who call upon the name of the Lord. So the question is, how do we, the church, get ready? Look again with me, starting in verse 8. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The text says that in order to get ready, we need to put on some specific clothes. Fine linen, bright and pure, which the text says is a metaphor for our righteous deeds. Now, contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not exist as a rule book. It's not a thousand-page document full of do's and don'ts. That's not the essence of the book. That's not what it's about. We just highlighted that the essence of this book is God's pursuit and marriage of his people culminated by a forever feast with God and his creation. That's what it's about. However, within this book, there are instructions on how to live rightly, how to be faithful to our betrothed in this season of engagement, of waiting. The Bible calls these instructions the law. And this law is summed up in this statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, as the text clearly states, to get ready is to seek to live by the law because that's what being faithful to our husband looks like. Remember the first century Jewish wedding, there's this engagement and then the couple becomes legally married and there's a commitment, a responsibility to be faithful even before that feast happens. We are engaged to be married to God and that engagement has been secured. We are his, and we are called to be faithful to him until he comes back. Wait a minute. That sounds like works righteousness. Sounds like you're saying that we have to earn God's favor, his love. Isn't, that the, whole, isn't the whole book of Galatians an argument against that? And you would be right to make that objection, which brings us back to the text, verse 8. Listen to what... The angels say, says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. How was the bride able to put these clothes on? They were gifted to her. She couldn't afford them. She certainly couldn't make them. But rather, someone granted her the ability to wear them, the privilege to wear these clothes. We hear this same idea in Isaiah chapter 61. Israel says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a priest, like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What we see here, and this is so important, is that our clothes, our righteous deeds are a gift from God. 
You may have heard the phrase before that as Christians, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what these texts are talking about, that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that on the cross, Jesus covered our sins, our sinful deeds with his own righteousness, and we now wear his righteousness. Therefore, good news, when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Those are the garments that we wear. His performance, not ours. That is truly good news. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Is our wedding dress something that we put on by obeying the law? Or is it something that's totally foreign to us, that is gifted to us as a result of work not done by us? And the answer is yes. It's both. I realize that that's hard for my Western mind, your Western mind to understand these concepts of both and. We Westerners like either or, black and white. But the text, and does this often in here, seems to argue that it's both. I love how one commentator engages this tension. He says, this does not deny the doctrine of justification, that we are made right with God based on the righteous obedience of Christ, that he has done it, but suggests that a transformed life is the proper response by the justified to the call of the heavenly bridegroom. Or this is how Paul says it in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what does that mean? Make it plain, Pastor. How do we get ready? How do we put on this wedding dress? It means that we must labor to be faithful to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what it looks like to wait well, to get ready. And the good news for you and I is that God has gifted us the garments. He is empowering us to do that. Through the power of his spirit, he is empowering us to grow more and more in his likeness until he comes back and the feast begins. It's his strength that, not ours, that enables us to wait well. It's so hard to wait, isn't it? This past weekend, I was away with some friends and we were staying in the same house together. And one evening, we were hanging out and chatting and enjoying being together and kind of forgot about dinner. All of a sudden, it's time to eat. We realized it was 7 o'clock and we haven't eaten anything. So we rushed to get ready and hurried out the door. And we arrived at the restaurant. And you could tell everyone was a little bit agitated. We call this hangry in my house. A little bit hungry, a little bit angry. You know what saved us? Chips, dips, and pickles, and some barbecue nachos. Some appetizers. We got to the restaurant. We were hungry. It was almost unbearable. But thankfully, the restaurant offered us a little taste of what was to come. Church, we are right now in this season of waiting. Christ has promised himself to us. We are engaged to be wed. But we have to wait until it's time for the great wedding feast and sometimes the waiting is too much it's so hard come Lord Jesus come now and yet God has graciously given us appetizers for us to enjoy while we wait and so I want to conclude with some practical application 
want to point you to two places where you can get some good apps. Okay? There's two places that are good places for us as Christians to find good appetizers are Christ's table and your table. Christ's table. As we talked about last week, this table is full of heavy hors d'oeuvres. This meal is really, really good. And it's offered to you week in and week out. And Christ promises to meet you here and fill you up. And so we need to allow that hunger, that longing to bring us here. And we get a foretaste of what is to come. But it's not just this table that God has given us. As we bring this series to a close, I want to encourage you also to look to your own table. The table at your house is a place to enjoy appetizers. Because each and every one of you and each and every person who lives in our beautiful city is created in the image of God. And so what that means is that when we fellowship together, we encounter the creator. Every time we spend time together, we get to see and experience God. So I want to charge you as, as we wrap this up to continue to make it a priority to fellowship with one another. For you introverts, that's, this is just a cup of coffee with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate. For you extroverts, throw a party. Invite the whole neighborhood, the whole office. Apply for a mission grant. The church would love to pay for it. We'd love for you guys to do this, to engage your community, to share a meal together. Regardless of what it looks like for you, don't neglect to do it. Don't miss out on the riches that come from sharing a meal together. Because the intimacy found at this table and at your table, those are the things that will empower you to wait well, to wait patiently for what is to come. I want to conclude with the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Christ Central, enjoy those apps now, but get ready, because one day the groom is coming back, and he is going to take us with him, and we will forever enjoy fellowship with him in our new forever home. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that it is hard to wait. This world is not as it should be, and so often I'm longing just to be with you. And I know that one day that will be true, but I ask that you empower us, that you help us to wait well, to be faithful to the groom as we wait for you to come back. Father, I pray that you would feed us and nourish us through the table of your son, Jesus Christ, and through the fellowship that we have with one another as we encounter you in both of those places. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.